Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. We're starting a new series. I learned from one of my mentors that uh, January 1st or the first Sunday in January is a great time to start a new series because you never know what people are, one of their New Year's resolutions is that they want to start going to church more and that this is a great way to try and make them not feel like they're coming in in the middle of something, but at the beginning. And so if you're here and that's part of your resolution or if you're watching online, um, we're really glad to have you uh, for this series. I... Um, I remember when I was, I want to say I was a sophomore in high school, uh, I remember going to uh, school for the state testing that took place. Um, and uh, uh, I, I don't want to say what the test was called because it'll age me how young I am. But um, uh, I went for the state testing and I uh, remember normally I would have a book that I was reading and that's what I would read after I finished the test. And that time I didn't really have a book I was reading so I remembered just kind of grabbing a Bible on my way out the door for school that day. And uh, I put it in my backpack, and so I, I remember I finished my test, I turned it in, and I sat down, and I pulled out my Bible and just thought, I'll, I'll just read until they say we can go. And I just turned to Romans. I, I, don't ha I didn't have any affinity for Romans. I, I just knew it was a book I hadn't really just explored much. And it was the first time in my life that I ever started a, a book at the beginning and finished it. Uh, I, I, it's funny, growing up a minister's kid, you would have thought uh, there maybe were more books that I had read from start to finish. Uh, but no, that was the first time. And I, I kind of had no idea you could do that. You know, the Bible is so big and daunting. You could read Jude in about 30 seconds, you know, but, and say, I read a whole book of the Bible today. But uh, I read through Romans, and I will say that's the most uh, impactful a book the biggest impact a book ever made on me was in that moment as a sophomore reading Romans. And so I actually have never done a Romans series, uh, never preached one, I've never taught a class on Romans because I'm intimidated by it because of how much it means to me and how much I want to convey that and I'm nervous that I, I won't. And so I hope you bear with me uh, while we go through Romans and I do my best to convey I'm going to kind of today be trying to do two things. Trying to lay a foundation because you're going to need it for the rest of this book. One thing that's really crucial about Romans is Paul is like constantly building on himself. He's like, because of this, this is true. And because this is true, this is true. And so if you miss a block, you can be really confused in Romans. Um, and so anyway, uh, another part of me, though, wants to help you in your lives and encourage you and strengthen your faith. So one time I was meeting a friend in, uh, I want to say it was near Pearland, south of Houston. And we were meeting at a, a, a burger place. And I remember walking in. And I got in line, and there was a guy in front of me who was kind of just, you could tell he just wouldn't stand still. He was twitching a lot. It was kind of odd. And he walked up to the counter, and he immediately started screaming at the, the cash register person, shouting, and just going on and on about how they had ruined his burger. And I remembered he, he was just yelling at this lady about, so I get in my car, I've already been in traffic for 30 minutes, and then I drive 20 minutes home, and I get home and my burger is ruined. It's soggy, it's terrible, and he's just going off on this woman. And I remember I'm standing there and in a really uncomfortable situation because I was, it's none of my business, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not, hey man, chill out. You know, I'm, I'm not some big tough guy. But I remember thinking like, I can't, just let this guy berate this woman like this. And so I remember saying, 
sir, I, I, this lady didn't make your hamburger. You know, she's working at the cash register. I, I'm, I, I'm sure. And, and oh, by the way, this lady was like saying, "We'll refund you." You know, she's like trying her best to appease this guy, but he he wants her to have it. And I remember trying to say to him, "Sir, this you don't need to talk to anybody like this. Calm down." And, and just relax, okay? You know, you're going to get your money back. And uh, anyway, some of you may be like, oh, I don't know what I would have do, done in that situation. Well, what I want you to know is once that guy left, just really upset, I went into the bathroom and I started crying. And I know you may think, like, what a wuss or, you know, I don't know. But it, it hurt me. Like, it was, it spent a lot of my energy to, I was stressed out. I'm a people pleaser. I did not like doing that. But the reason I tell you this story is, um, in that moment, I had to respond. And you may think, no, you didn't. You didn't have to respond. And here's what I'm, I'm going to tell you. If I had done nothing, that would have been my response. And by doing something, that was my response. In that situation, who, every single person in that restaurant responded, whether they did anything or not. You, you picking up what I'm putting down? By doing nothing, that's your response. By doing something, that was my response. And what I want to tell you about is today when we read Romans and when we read Romans throughout, one thing Paul is going to say over and over again is you cannot hear this and do nothing. If you do nothing, that is your response. But if you choose to respond the way I hope you do, it'll look like faith. It'll look like choosing to have faith in Christ. You have to respond to this. Um, I think about all of us go through situations where you may not have been in a situation where someone was screaming at the person at the cash register and trying to decide, what do I do? But you've had moments in life where something has come up and you feel a compulsion of, oh, I need to respond, but I don't know if I want to respond. I, I need to do something about this, but uh, I, don't, I don't know if I, I really want to. You see somebody pulled over on the side of the road and they've got their tire off. Some of you may stop and respond by doing something. Some of you, it, you might be too busy. I've had my moments of being too busy and I've had my moments of pulling over and helping. But either way, you responded by keeping on driving or you responded by helping. You, you, you picking up what I'm putting down? Okay. So, um, as we go through Romans, we're going to see Paul is constantly saying, so you need to respond to this message. Um, this is, Romans is, many people consider Paul's swan song. It is his uh, masterpiece. Uh, it is his most brilliant letter, likely. It is his Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is Romans for Paul. It is the longest, and as we're going to read today, we're just going to read his greeting, uh, or fancy people will say his salutation to the church. Um, and this is his longest and most theologically dense greeting that he has in all of his letters. So if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 1 at the very beginning. And by the way, we did those scripture journals when we went through John. If any of you would like really like to have one of those scripture journals where it's, it's a copy of the book of Romans about this thick that has a blank page on each side so you can take notes, you let me know and the church will buy you one and uh, so you can follow along uh, if that's something you would like to do. So starting Romans 1 at the very beginning, I'm going to read and pause as I, I do often. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus. Some of your translations might say a slave of Christ Jesus. Called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life 
was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. This word gospel, you've probably heard it a million times, but it's worth reiterating. The word gospel in Greek literally just means good news. Uh, the word in Greek is evangelion, which is where we get the word evangelism, to proclaim the good news. Okay? Evangelism, good news, gospel. But one thing you probably don't know about this word is that this is a word that was used any time that a Caesar became king. Anytime a Caesar became king, they would say, we have good news. The Caesar has been, is, has been born or has been uh, crowned. And so you're going to need to remember throughout this series that everything Paul is saying is in the shadow of the Roman Empire of Caesar. So when he goes on and he says, listen, Jesus Christ, this isn't just a title, uh, or this isn't just Jesus Christ like Andrew Ritchie. It's not a first and a last name. No, it is a title that he's proclaiming this is a Lord and a Messiah. And when he says that, it's in direct competition with a different person, with a different title, whose name is Caesar, living in Rome, who the Roman culture is going to say, this guy's the greatest. And Paul is continually going to say, listen, you think it's good news a Caesar reigns? Well, let me tell you about my good news. My good news is about the guy who truly is the Son of God. Caesar would have been called a Son of God. But let me tell you about Jesus, the true Son of God. Caesar would have been said that he's a descendant of all these kings. And Paul is saying, let me tell you about my king, who is a descendant from the line of David, a much longer and older lineage. Paul contends that Jesus is the true Son of God. He is the true Israel. The Old Testament promises regarding the vindication of Israel have been fulfilled in and through Him. Jesus is the Son of God who has been resurrected from the dead. God has fulfilled His promises made to Israel through and in the Messiah Jesus. One becomes a recipient of the blessings of Israel by, therefore by incorporation into the Messiah. This King that has come, He's the true one. He is the one that has been promised. He's the son of the line of David. And if you want to have a relationship with Him, that's your way that you're going to be able to be incorporated into this family. Starting in verse 5, or continuing on, Through Him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for His name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be His holy people, grace and peace to you from our God, from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a long, long way of Paul saying this letter is written by Paul, and it is written to all of you Christians who are worshiping here in Rome. And you should keep in mind, this is maybe less than 100 people, probably living in homes in the poor part of Rome. So you've got in this poor part of Rome, these less than a hundred Christians living in the shadow of the empire. And the one thing I love too, I, I got to point out, this phrase where he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Back then it would have been customary just to say something like greetings. That would have been the, the customary greeting. But here he says, grace and peace. Grace is because he's trying to switch out, instead of saying the normal word for Greeting, he's saying grace because of how big a deal God's grace is through Jesus Christ. So he purposely picks that. And then he says the word peace because he knows he's got this Jewish audience where the way you greet people is by saying shalom, peace. I hope that your life is going well. So it's kind of a cool 
Note that instead of just going, hey, greetings, everybody, he purposely writes grace and peace because it aligns with his gospel. All right, next, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you. I'm constantly thinking about you. Y'all are great. I hear so many wonderful things about your faith. I'm thinking about you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to see you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I hope we can meet because you're going to grow and I'm going to grow from our interaction. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. So Paul is writing this letter saying, I'd really love to come visit you. And one thing you need to keep in mind too is that Paul, this is one of the few letters where Paul is not writing to a church that he established or that one of his associates established. And so one thing that I read throughout is part of why Paul is including so much of this theological bravado and, and deep theological things is because he's, this is kind of his... Uh, not interview, but he's trying to gain their uh, credibility. or he, He's trying to show, like, listen, this gospel, I can talk about it incredibly well, and it's worth listening to what I have to say. You can, you can almost imagine if some guest speaker was coming through and they came to speak to all of you, at some level they're trying to show you that they know what they're talking about, right? Because you haven't built that relationship with them. They're trying to say, listen, I... Uh, this is what I believe. This is what I think is true. That's what Paul is doing here. These Christians, some of them uh, know him, some of the Jewish ones, but many of them don't know him because he's never been there. So this is his way of building this theological foundation. He says, I am obligated both to the Greeks. I am obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks. How many of your translations say to the barbarians? Does anybody's yours says barbarians? So that's kind of Paul a little bit making a joke because... Um, Really, really Greek people would have said that Greek is like the true, uh, fa the, the fanciness of this world. And if you don't speak Greek, then you're a barbarian. And so Romans were not Greek-speaking people. You've got the Greeks, and now this is Rome. And so in some ways, Paul's almost like making a little bit of a joke. He's saying, my witness isn't just to the, the fancy people. My witness is to even you barbarians, which would have made everyone laugh because the Romans thought they were better than the Greeks, right? You know, so he's making a little joke. Uh, I'm obligated both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you here in Rome. He's kind of jokingly saying like, don't worry, I'm, I'm excited to preach to you foolish barbarians also. Um, but then we get to what is uh, just an incredibly uh, important passage, part of this introduction for the whole rest of the series. Um, I'm going to do my best to talk about it um, both in a, a way that you need to understand and also uh, a moving kind of way. Starting in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So the first thing I want to talk about is this part where it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
And you might be wondering, well, what exactly uh, is Paul talking about here? Because in our culture, in our world, I know exactly what this looks like, to not be ashamed of the gospel. Today, in many parts of the world, and this was... There, this is very common in Europe. You ready? There might be, in Europe, there might be 20% of the European population that are Christians, okay? But only 10% of them would ever admit to being a Christian because it's embarrassing. You look like an idiot. Does that make sense? Over there, you sound kind of, well, you must be an idiot. You must be kind of ridiculous if you're actually a Christian. And here in America, up until probably the last maybe 10 years, There might be 30% of the population that's actually Christian, but 60% say they're Christians. Does that make sense? Because here, there's still, there was, still a little bit of a positive towards, well, I'm not really a Christian, but I get some points if I say I am. So I'm going to say, even though I'm not. Whereas in England, in Europe, it's like you get down points if you say you're Christian. Does that make sense? As America becomes more and more post-Christian, That's going to become more and more of our story. There's going to be more and more people who are Christian but don't necessarily want to admit it to anybody because they're immediately going to think, wait, do you believe in the tooth fairy too? Like, do you, you know, you're, are you crazy? It's embarrassing. Television, movies constantly make plenty of opportunities to poke fun. Newspapers poke fun at Christianity to poke fun at how ridiculous it would be to waste your life on something like that, something like a fairy tale. There's one of my favorite movies Uh, that I, right now, currently, there's multiple scenes where they mock Christianity. And anytime I recommend the movie to people, I always say, just got to warn you, there's a couple scenes where they kind of make fun of Christianity. And usually, people are like, oh, well, then why do you like the movie? And I'll say, well, I just think the movie's shedding light on what people actually think. Does that make sense? That doesn't necessarily mean I agree with it. What it means is they're portraying what people out there actually think about Christians. So when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, what we often think of is, am I someone who's willing to go out there and say, I am a Christian to people? Here in small town, rural Texas, the odds are you are not going to be made fun of for that. But give it some time, okay? And go somewhere else, and you will see what I'm talking about. But here is what Paul is actually talking about. As we have already seen, his world was dominated And the Roman church in particular was to be dominated by a culture that focused on one city and one man. Caesar claimed to rule the world, and God's gospel claimed claimed that Jesus ruled the world. What was a Christian supposed to do back then in Rome? Were they supposed to practice their faith in private in case it offended someone? Were they supposed to practice their faith quietly and secretively so that it didn't lead to anybody getting tortured or killed? Certainly not. Paul may have had Psalm 119 in mind when he said this. Psalm 119, verse 46 says, I will speak of your decrees before kings, and I will not be put to shame. This is what he intended to do. So here's one of my first takeaways from this sermon I want you to think about. Both of these are true or are going to be true in your life at some point. When I got the opportunity, Ryan gave me the opportunity to speak to the FCA in the middle school FCA not that long ago. I was trying to think, what would I want middle schoolers to hear? What is something where if I only got one shot to speak to them? And the thing I decided to talk about was the fact that when you are in middle school, your greatest fear in life is to be seen as uncool. 
to be seen as doing something embarrassing that might lead everybody to ostracizing you or everybody to saying, I don't want to spend time with that person. Uh, they're lame. Or did you see them? I, I, I asked them. I said, what's something embarrassing that happens in baseball? And they said, one kid raised their hand. And they said, striking out is embarrassing. How many great baseball players would have never gotten to be good baseball players if the first time they struck out, they said, I'm not doing that again. That was embarrassing. How many great athletes, the first time they airballed a free throw, would have, oh, that was embarrassing. People saw that. And yet, that is such a big deal for young people and for adults. Anything that makes us possibly be embarrassed, we're out. And Paul is saying, you are going to be embarrassed whenever you tell someone, actually, I decided to forgive my enemy. You are going to be embarrassed whenever people say, wait a second, you give like a percentage of your income every month to the church? That, that's ridiculous. I, I could go on and on on the number of things where people might see, wait a second, you actually believe that like God created this world? Or wait a second, you actually believe that you're telling me that you think that the way to have an eternal life is because of some guy in the Middle East that died on a cross and was raised in three days. All of those things are things that you may not have to face in your life, but we as a church are facing and will continue to face. And the question that Paul asks is, how are you going to say it? Are you going to say, yeah, I'm a Christian? Or are you going to, with your life, proclaim, I'm a Christian, and I'm not ashamed of this good news? And I'm going to take it a step further. There are plenty of you that it's no problem at all, and, and myself included, saying I'm a Christian. But then there comes a point where our loyalty to Christianity or to other things, our intention. It's been really easy for a long time to say I'm a Christian, and that for that not to necessarily mean you have to sacrifice something. But it, the time is now, and the days are coming more and more where you will have to say, you know what? My faith tells me that I shouldn't do that. But it's going to run a risk of pushing up against some of these other powers, these other things that are in charge in the world. And what am I going to do? And for Paul, just like with Caesar, his answer was, I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. Okay, let's keep reading. Uh, or going back, I want to point out a couple more things. And I'll try to, uh, try to not take too much longer. One of the most important things about this series that I've got to mention is that, remember when I did the, the wisdom Proverbs series, and I talked about the fear of the Lord, and I said that phrase is a very loaded phrase. It's got a lot going on. Well, this word where Paul says, for the gospel is the righteousness of God, that is a very loaded phrase. My Bible professors would have said that is a pregnant phrase, meaning it's got a whole lot there going on. And so what I want you to do is every time you see this word, I want you to think about multiple things at once, okay? This isn't just some simple thing. Add like three or four things into your cake of the righteousness of God, all right? So you ready? Ingredient number one. The word righteousness of God that many people talk about is how this word in Greek, righteousness, is connected to all these Jewish words that have to do with God's covenant faithfulness to save his people, okay? That whenever you see the word the righteousness of God, you should trigger in your mind God's desire to bring vindication and justice through his covenant faithfulness with his people. Psalm 98, 2 through 3. Whoa, there we go. Psalm 98, 2 through 3 says, The Lord has made his salvation, his desire to save us, known and revealed, and revealed his righteousness to the nations. These are supposed to be like the same thing. He has made his saving desire known, and he has revealed his saving covenantal desire to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So you see here, he's 
This is an, one example of the idea that when you see the phrase, because of the righteousness of God, God's righteousness is revealed, you should think of His saving power. The second ingredient that you should think of is that the righteousness of God is our status or our standing before God, being in right standing before God. Righteousness is a gift given to sinners. It's a declaration to those who have failed to keep the law, who have failed to glorify God every day in their lives, but who have trusted in Jesus Christ, and we therefore stand in the right before God. The declaration is Jesus stands right before God, is in right standing as his status. And if you choose to have a relationship with him, then you are united with Christ in that right standing. Okay? So whenever you see that phrase, the righteousness of God, think of multiple things. Think about God's covenantal faithfulness that he began with Abraham, that he would bless him and bless the world through him. Think about his covenant that he kept going with his people of faithfulness and justice. And also think about this word, like I said, your status or right standing before God. For Paul, the gospel is God's saving righteousness and covenantal faithfulness that is revealed. The promises of worldwide blessing first made to Abraham and through Abraham's descendants are now a reality. Okay, so here is a summary of 16 through 17. Paul is not afraid to speak out and live out the message of Christ because the good news of what God has done through Christ is God's saving power for all who believe, no matter your race or social status. The reason the gospel is God's saving power is because God's covenantal faithfulness is revealed at the cross. Human beings experience God's right, saving righteousness. They stand in this right relationship with God by God's faithfulness and their faithful response. So the, the last phrase I really want to focus on is this one right here. By faithfulness through faithfulness. Some of your translations probably say the phrase um, faith from first to last. And there's lots of ways people have interpreted this. But the bottom line is you're never really going to know exactly what he means. What does he mean to say from faith to faith? From faith from first to last. And the idea is that throughout this whole process, faith is at the center. This is the response. And the thing that I, I really like to think this is talking about is the idea that the reason why Jesus Christ's death on the cross will save you and redeem you, the reason why it matters is because God's faithfulness was displayed on the cross and the response that we're supposed to make is by responding with our own faithfulness. Whenever I use that story of talking about me with the person at the restaurant, I knew I had to respond, whether I did something or not. And this is what Paul is saying to them. He's saying, listen, God demonstrated his covenantal faithfulness. The righteousness of God was displayed on the cross. And it is now your turn to respond. And my hope is, is that your response is faith. Because a faithful, the faithfulness of God leads to and compels the faithfulness of us to respond. And when we tell the gospel to others, that leads to the faithfulness of others responding to that same message. If you want to benefit or you want to enjoy this righteousness of God that Paul's going to talk about over and over, uh, talk about his faithfulness and the promises that he made long ago that he fulfilled through Christ, it is necessary for you yourself to respond with faithfulness from Christ and God's faithfulness to your faithfulness. God has been faithful to his promises and purposes. And if you want to benefit from this, your answer must be faithfulness. In Jesus the Messiah, God has shown himself faithful to his covenant purposes and promises. And those who believe the good news about Jesus will find that this faithfulness reaches out 
and it embraces them with a salvation which can never be taken away. So I want to encourage you before we go. This phrase, faithfulness to faithfulness. I think there are many people who think that part of being a Christian is because what they did was they sat down one day and they looked at all the texts and they looked at everything and they were like, hmm, is this something I want to be a part of or not? I don't really know almost anybody who came to faith that way. I just don't know anybody who sat down with a Bible and just said, you know what, I'm, I'm really considering this Christianity thing. You know what happens usually is somebody is compelled to come to know more and when they see the faithfulness of someone else, they're compelled by that to respond to something. And where does that draw back to? Someone at some point, Paul for example, was compelled because of Christ coming to him to say, you know what, I have to have faith in this. And that leads me to not being ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of Christ being revealed. I have to respond by doing this. I have to go and proclaim this message to the Gentiles and to the Jews. This is something I, I can't help but do. It's like you're being pulled by a current of a river. It's like being in the ocean and the tide starts pulling you in. There's this compulsion of, I've got to respond to this in faith. And that's what hopefully you're going to see throughout the rest of Romans, is every time we get deeper and deeper into it, of just the extent of God's love, that God's love, nothing can separate us from it, the more and more you will just be compelled to have to respond to this in faith. And that's my prayer, is that you will. And if any of you have any prayer requests, anything that you need at all, I'd encourage you that there will be some elders standing at the doors. And also, if any of you would like to respond in faith, I'd love to talk to you more about it as we stand and sing.